Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying safe, healthy, and happy. It's a big show this week, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet comedian Alonzo Bowden. You may know him from his winning stint on Last Comic Standing or the hundreds of live shows that he does every year. He'll join me from his home in Los Angeles to talk about his upcoming shows at Just for Laughs. Then Tracy Deer, director of Beans, which opens in theaters on July 23rd, joins me to talk about how the Oka crisis in 1990 affected her life and eventually became the basis for her new movie. First, though, let's hear a quick hit from my interview with Creation Records label founder Alan McGee, the music industry executive who discovered Jesus and the Mary Chain, Primal Scream, My Bloody Valentine, and Oasis, all bands that changed the musical landscape when they released their albums. The full interview can be found in my SoundCloud House of Krauss podcast, The Richard Krauss Show. But for right now, here's a taste of Alan McGee. When you look back at all the records that you made, and they were coming out so quickly there was one here in six weeks you put out three uh stone cold classics you've got my bloody valentine's loveless teenage fan clubs bandwagon-esque uh screamadelica i mean it, this is an extraordinary run when you think back to those records or if you're out in the grocery store or in a club or something and you hear one of those songs does it take you back to that moment are they kind of like a a catalog of your life you know what when they, these records were coming out Richard, i realized at a certain point it's not is there like a song from the totality of creation records that you would think is the song that most sums up the ethos of of your record label yes serious drugs by the bmx band if you And why so? Because it's about drugs. <laughs> Alan McGee's life story is told in the new film Creation Story, starring Ewan Bremner, and on VOD starting July 20th. Find the full uncensored interview with Alan McGee on my SoundCloud House of Krauss podcast, The Richard Krauss Show. Be a punk. Be a rebel always. There's always something to rebel for. What is this film? A documentary? No, it's a biopic. Forrest Gump meets Boys in the Hood. Now let's get to Beans, playing in theaters on July 23rd. In Beans, a 12-year-old Mohawk girl nicknamed Beans grows up fast during the 78-day standoff between two Mohawk communities and government forces during the 1990 Oka crisis. Here's director Tracy Deer. My name is Digahandakwa. Or you can call me Beans. Everybody does. The occupation of an ancient pine forest on the Mohawk Reserve of Ganazadage is in its fourth month. The people here are protecting a burial ground from being leveled for a golf course expansion by the neighboring town of Oka. First of all, congratulations on having Beans be one of the first movies to come back and play inside in 15, 16 months. That must feel great. As a filmmaker, I know you want to see your film on the big screen. Absolutely. And, and thank you for the congratulations. I am so thrilled that people are going to have the chance to see it on the big screen and with that fantastic surround sound. The film was set in 1990 in and around the Oka crisis, but that was a significant year for you 
not simply because of that, although we'll get to that in a moment, but it is the year, from what I understand, that uh, you could rent commercial VHS players from the video store for the first time. And that's what ignited your love of film. So let's kind of start there. Tell me a little bit about that and tell me about what happened when you discovered movies. Sure. So we had a video store on uh, in the community. And at the time, the commercial VHS player, it was it was it was too expensive for our family to own, but we were able to rent it. My father was an iron worker, so we we had the money that we he could rent this over the weekend, and then he would always rent this big pile of movies. It literally the pile was as tall as I was, and so the the morning would be spent with me and my sister watching children's movies. We would watch the family movies in the afternoon, and then. My mom and dad would sort of kick us out and they would watch the more adult movies in the evening. And it was just absolutely incredible. For me, it was a chance to um, see, see the world, go to different places, go to different galaxies even, right? And I, I was enthralled um, by the experience. It was also a safe place for me to, to feel my feelings. I was a very sensitive child. Mm. Growing up, you know, in a community where... Um, I, I was definitely aware that the the prevailing idea was that uh, our feelings make us weak. And so as a sensitive child, I, I tried so hard to not feel my feelings and to be tougher, right? And it's the same journey that my, my protagonist goes on in, in, the, in the movie. But movies allowed me to cry. They allowed me to be angry. They And they allowed me to learn more about myself. What would I do in this situation? How would I feel in this situation? I think empathy and compassion um, was, was, what's the word I want, um, cultivated uh, in me at, at, at that young age. And so on so many levels, I, I, I credit movies for being who I am. And then of course, it's, it's, where I've, I found my passion to one day want to do it myself as well. Am I wrong to draw a straight line from those days? And I'm sure there were Steven Spielberg movies in the mix there. And I've read that you loved those movies, his early movies. Uh, am I wrong to draw a straight line from Steven Spielberg's films featuring young people where a complex story is told through the eyes of a young person and the story of Beans? Oh, you could draw that line. You could absolutely draw that line. I don't even know how many times I've seen The Goonies. You know, I, 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 I loved his movies growing up and I love his movies to this day. Yeah. Now, you wrote Beans over the course, co-wrote Beans with uh, your writing partner, Meredith uh, Vonich, over the course of, a, of a, a long time. It's a difficult story for you to tell, I imagine. It is based in truth, it is based uh, in your experience uh, of a very troubling time in history, personally and for, for the country. So tell me a little bit about the process of spending, I heard eight years, I'm not sure if that's true, eight years writing something that is personally that triggering, that difficult. Uh, uh, the word I would choose is torture. Um, and that's why it took the time it took. So many times I, I just couldn't sit down. I couldn't go to those memories. I didn't 
realize when we set out um, on this journey, how tucked away those memories were and that accessing them was very difficult. And, and the, res the internal resistance to go back there was massive. So there would be times where I would go to sit down and write and uh, I, would, I would shake or I would feel nauseous or I would just burst out into tears. Mm -hmm. And in those moments, rather than sort of pushing through, I would often just say, okay, not today and get up and walk away. And, and that went on for a while um, until, until we got to the point where I, I had to make a decision. Am I going to do this? Is it time? To, is it, do I want to tell this story? And so there were, there were these tough moments where I would sit down and I would write through tears um, and then sob once I was finished. So it was on and off like that for, for a very long time. And then in the meantime, of course, I had Mohawk Girls, the television show, and then I was on Anne with an E. And what, what, has, what was wonderful about it taking the time it took is that with all of those other experiences, I was learning more about my craft and becoming more and more confident in my voice and knowing what it is I wanted to say with this film, because it, it is, there's so much going on. The Oka crisis itself is, is massive. Um, how do I say everything I want to say? And so it took the time it took. And I think it, it coming out now is, is the perfect time for it. And so I think everything happened exactly the way it needed to. So, you know, going back, I have no regrets or I have no, I can't say to you, you know, I wish I had just I, I wish I had pushed through those tough moments sooner. No, it, it took the time it took for it to be what it is and for it to be in this moment right now where I think it can, it can do a lot of good. I, I want to be tough like you. Okay, prove it. Raise your elbows. As long as you're punching, she can. Ow! If you can't feel pain, then no one can hurt you. You've been sitting with this completed film for, for some time now, and... I congratulated you off the top uh, about being one of the first films to play in a movie theater, uh, but you didn't, I don't, well, maybe that was the reason that the, that beans kept getting moved, the date kept getting moved, but I do think that now is absolutely the perfect time uh, to release this film because of the issues that it raises, because of the emotional honesty that is contained uh, in the film. And there are scenes uh, in this movie, I'm thinking of the bridge scene uh, that are just harrowing to watch. But while you're watching them, I never felt uh, like as a viewer that I was being exploited or that I was being okay. manipulated into feeling a certain way. It all felt authentic to me and it all felt uh, just goosebumps talking. It just all, all felt um, uh, so authentic. Those scenes uh, will I think have a greater impact today than, do you, or maybe here's a question. Do you think those scenes will have a greater impact today than they might've a year ago, or if this film was finished eight years ago, when you first started writing and you, you banged through it and got it done right away? So here's the thing. I think, I think that that scene would have an impact on a viewer, regardless of when it came out. The difference is, I think more people now are open to seeing the film, would be interested in seeing the film. Um, whereas if it came out five years ago, I, I, don't, I don't know how many may have seen it. But I think that 
that scene was devastating 30 years ago. When it happened to you. When it happened to me, when it was on the news, when people saw the, the news footage of it. I think whenever you might see that footage, it, it's always very shocking. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's a powerful scene regardless, but I think more people will now get the chance to see it because there, there, is, there seems to me anyway to be a, a, a more openness now in this country to hear from Indigenous people and really listen to us. This is unrelated to the film, but I can't help but think that a film with a 12-year-old protagonist to an Indigenous protagonist will resonate very loudly because of the news uh, that we've been hearing um, of, of girls and boys in and around that age, young Aboriginal yeah. kids uh, in these unmarked graves. And when you see it, uh, when you see this story brought to life on the screen like that, it has to have uh, a, a big bang to it. It has to have uh, an impact. I hope so. I really do. When we look at the, the younger actors in the film, they have some of the same concerns that every teen has probably, or every young person has, uh, but they're also growing up within this very difficult situation set against the backdrop of, of Oka. Is there a sense that you're trying to convey that, um, that children in that situation, that these indigenous children in that situation don't get to have the same kind of, I don't know, carefree childhood that perhaps so many others are afforded? Absolutely. That is, thank you. That is absolutely what I want to say. Um, you know, that, that summer, that's what was stolen from me that summer. Um, my innocence, my sense of hope, my sense of safety, my ability to dream, um, all of that was shattered. And I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky that towards the end of my adolescence, I was able to, I was able to find my way back to some of that. My sense of safety has never returned. Um, safety is a massive value of mine. I, I now know because of what I experienced, but I was able to grab back onto my ability to dream and, and have this dream to become a filmmaker. But it was still very much tied to what I'd lived through <clears throat> because my drive and my will to succeed was very much related to wanting to prove all of those people wrong. Those people who threw rocks at us, right. um, those people who made me feel less than, um, I wanted to prove to them they were wrong and I had something, I had something to say and we are all special and we all deserve our, our space. You're listening to Mind Review with Tracy Deer, director of Beans, playing in theaters beginning July 23rd. Do you think that being a storyteller, which is very much connected to indigenous culture, but also it just allows you to dream. I mean, the, the whole idea of being a storyteller is to you know, live in your head a little bit and to, and to, to poke around the corners and see what's in them. Uh, do you think Absolutely. that is part of the thing that, that helped the convalescence from the, the trauma of, of 1990? Absolutely. Um, I, I think my whole career has been about, has been about that, has it been about healing? You know, that little girl felt invisible. She felt voiceless. She felt powerless. Mm -hmm. And I feel that my career as a storyteller, it has been the exact opposite of that. I, I feel very empowered and, and I now feel powerful because I do have a platform and I can, I can share these stories that unfortunately 
go unheard. Um, although I think we are now in a new era where our voices are having, we have a platform and uh, we are loud, we are proud, and we are not going anywhere. The film ends on what I took as a, a, a hopeful note, you know, and, and it's such a, a, a lovely moment because it bookends the beginning. I don't want to give anything away, but it bookends uh, the beginning uh, in, a, in a very interesting way and sort of brings closure to the story. And you just get the sense that in the moment anyway, things are probably going to turn out okay for her. And I thought that was a powerful message to send. Good, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Unfortunately, for so long, especially when our stories haven't been in our own hands, the, the narrative is so bleak. Mm-hmm. And, and we are Indigenous people, we, we have a lot that we're dealing with. But if you came to my community, if you came to my home, uh, we are not sitting around, um, you know, marinating in that bleakness. Right. We we are we are finding our ways to be strong, to be joyful, to to thrive, and I I think that's really important. That's really really important part that um, most of the country is not aware of. Um, unfortunately, news media, <clears throat> you know, they they focus on a lot of the really negative stories, and it's a thirty second soundbite. And so, if this is your only exposure to my people and our communities your impressions will be very skewed by that. And so I, I, I think unfortunately trauma is built into the indigenous experience and I wish it weren't. So it's, for me, it's important to tackle those issues, but it's also really important to focus on all of the other, all of the other beauty, uh, love and family and, and resilience and strength and power that's i'm so proud of that and and that is true to my experience as an indigenous person thank you so much and congratulations on beans i'm so thrilled for you that it's going to play in a theater that we thank can you. see it on the big screen it's exciting thank you so much we'll see you again soon i hope okay. bye bye Daddy! what is going on here we're taking the bridge oh, you want to use this bridge Honey, you need to be able to stand up for what's important to you. That was my interview with Tracy Deer. She is the director of Beans, which will be in theaters on July 23rd. While the search for identity is not a new concept in coming-of-age films, the First Nations context in Beans, combined with very powerful performances, makes this movie important, vital cinema. Check it out when it comes to a theater near you, Sometime after July 23rd, check your local listings. You won't be disappointed. The movie is called Beans, and my guest has been Tracy Deer. I'm pleased to welcome comedian Alonzo Bowden to the show. He's been making audiences around North America laugh for more than 20 years. He's the winner of the reality show Last Comic Standing, the podcast host of Who's Paying Attention, which you can find as part of All Things Comedy, and a television host who recently released his fifth comedy CD. That one's called Man Overboard. He's had TV specials, he's a regular at the Just for Laughs Festival, and he returns to JFL this year, virtually from Los Angeles. 
But we started this conversation by talking about how Just for Laughs gave him his first big break. Just for Laughs in Montreal, it's a hybrid festival this year. It's a, it probably will feel a little different than it has in years past. But I wanted to go back uh, a little ways because you credit Just for Laughs in Montreal with really kickstarting your career when you told an audience member to shut up. What happened? Do you remember? <laughs> I will I will always remember that. That was the night I became a comic, Richard. I was doing New Faces, and I have had this joke that I used to do. And I said, I don't like hockey, right? And and to say I don't like hockey in Canada is sacrilege. <laughs> and, and right away, the crowd was like, boo, boo. And I was like, shut up. I don't like hockey because the only thing black is the puck. Now, golf, on the other hand, right, and and that was the joke, and they loved it, and and after that, you know how the festival used to be. There were all these uh, producers and yeah. network people, and all of them, and and my manager came running down the stairs after the set, and he said, "You're about to make a ton of money because everyone wants to know who you are," and uh, and the rest is history. So I will always credit Montreal with that. That's when I gave up the day job and became a comic because I said, I don't like hockey. Now, was that an ad lib or had you thought maybe in the back of your head, you'd get that reaction? No, I didn't. I didn't expect that reaction at all. So, so it was an ad lib. It was it, the, the shut up. And, you know, of course I had to joke in the punchline, but shutting them up and, and taking control. That was just being a comic. You know, here's the thing early in your career, you don't get to work these comedy clubs. You don't work what we call A rooms. You're working bars. You're in a hotel, you know, ballroom, and you're the entertainment before the dancing, but they came to dance. <laughs> People don't want to hear you, so you learn to shut them up and take control. So that kicked in, and and I'm glad I had that experience. So, in, you know, the crowd gets mad, but you don't get scared. You're like, what? You, you attack. <laughs> well, I, I often think when I see comedians and someone tells the audience to shut up, that it's a way of asserting your dominance over them. You're saying you are going to pay attention to me, whether you like it or not. I'm going to make you pay attention. And that, I guess, is probably very important. You have to, you're up there alone. You have to fight for it every time out. Oh, yeah, you have to, because if you don't, they will ignore you. And comedy's not passive. You know, I, I have friends who are musicians you can talk during the music. You can do, but comedy, we know you're going to pay attention to me. I'm up here, and that is one way of asserting the the dominance of the room. And and here's the thing: it's not an attack like angry. Mm -hmm. It it's funny, but they're still like, whoa! I didn't didn't expect that. <laughs> and then you hit them with some funny. You get them, and then you hit them with something funny, and they're like, oh, okay, now we're in. Now, I love, I've been reading some interviews with you, and you say that your favorite jokes are the jokes that you say in the moment and will never be funny again. But in that moment, uh, they they kill because they're the right line for that time. And I guess that's the skill that you hone over years of playing before the dancing starts and in bars where people are drinking and not paying that much attention. You have to learn to really let it flow. You, you trust yourself. I trust myself. And people ask where it comes from. And I tell them, I don't know. It's the gift. Yeah. Something happens. Because I, when, when you're doing stand-up, you're in the moment, right? You're, you're not in your head. One of the best pieces of advice I got early on was never think on stage. Mm. Just be there. So, so 
something pops up and you say something in that moment. And again, it's just funny. It's hilarious in that moment. And then you can move on. And where I really felt good about that, where I really felt a high compliment about that is I do a lot of work with jazz musicians. I host jazz festivals. I'm on the jazz cruises and I was doing a show and I'm just, I, I love making fun of musicians and, and joking with them. And they told me, they said, man, what you do up there, that's jazz. That's jazz. So there's no better judge of improvisation than a jazz musician. Mm -hmm. And, and for, to have them compliment my improv was really a, a great moment. It's that vocalese that you have, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to my interview with comedian Alonzo Bowden. He appears at JFL this year. For more information, check out hahaha.com. Uh, it's funny. I've, I've been reading so much about you. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to me that you really took two steps into comedy after working in the in the airline industry, working as a mechanic and, and, and at a high level, making some money. But you were also an addict back then. And it, it strikes me, and hearing you say it's best not to think on stage, best not to be too much in your own head. But I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that your comedy really started to catch fire and your interest in it when you gave up drugs and alcohol and everything else and had a clearer head. Is that does that fit the timeline? You know, uh, thanks for asking about this. I actually have never been high or drunk on stage. I was five years sober when I started. What recovery did, besi besides probably opening up that creativity, it allowed me the freedom to try doing something I wanted to do. You know, I, I always say, that I never would have found comedy had I not found recovery, right? So, so you know, if you really want to get into the heavy question, like, well, if I wasn't an addict, would I have become a comic? And, and I can't go that deep. I will tell you, and, and it was a direct timeline, Richard. I, I got sober at a place called Studio 12. And the stars went to Betty Ford. The crew went to Studio 12. I was around cameramen makeup artists, wardrobe people, grips, all of that. Being around those people and, and seeing people who loved what they did for a living and worked in a creative environment and doing it, they taught me and they let me, they said, you can do what you love. Don't worry about the money. Just do what you love and it'll come together. And that's what happened. So that's how the recovery tied into it. it, it but the creativity, the openness of mind, uh, definitely came from, you know, when you, when you're in recovery, when you remove that cloud of drugs and alcohol, you, you blossom and you find things you, you, I'd say people either find, go back to something they once had or find something they never knew. So I, I was lucky in that I found something I never knew. I would imagine that comedy clubs weren't always the easiest place to be though, if you're in recovery. You know, they were for me. Really? And, and I'll tell you why, because I knew I was there to do comedy, right? The comedy was a drug. Getting on stage, do, the doing that was a drug. The other thing, Richard, I've done plenty of drugs and alcohol. So if you, you <laughs> offer me two drinks, it's like, really? Is that all you got? No, thanks. Hey, listen, we, we're going to, you're going to really have to step up your game if you're offering temptation. So right. no, it wasn't, it wasn't tempting in that sense, I think. Because A, I was there to do comedy and the comedy was the love and I was just 
absorbing it like a sponge mm -hmm. and B because when it came to the drugs and alcohol, I realized that I can't do it anymore. And I've been there and done that. So there wasn't a, there wasn't a temptation, you know, it, it's not like, Hmm, let me see. I've never had a Zima. Maybe that'll be different, right? <laughs> what do you learn as a doorman at the Laugh Factory? It is one of the, the steps in Los Angeles comedy circles. It is one of the steps towards getting on stage. You, you, you work there and then eventually you get a, a spot inside. But what do you learn from that? Well, you know, today they would call it a master class. When I was a doorman at the Laugh Factory, every night I was watching Dom Herrera, George Lopez, George Wallace, Damon Wayans, uh, Drew Carey, and, and on and on, uh, Brett Butler, just just coming through, just doing spots. You're watching them every night, and, I, and I'm learning. And when somebody didn't show up or was late, which I was hoping for all the time, Jamie Masada, the owner, would, would give me stage time. So I might go on stage, you know, right after George Wallace. I might go on stage right after Chris Rock. And, and George Lopez gave me great advice one time. He said, no, don't worry about the famous person before you because the audience already knows who that is. Yeah. Let them know who you are. So so that was, the it was like, you're suddenly in the major leagues, you know. Um, Pete Rose, I, I did a sporting event once and he was a keynote speaker. And he said his first all-star game he had to bat between Hank Aaron and Willie Mays. And he said, guess who they pitched to, you know? So you're around that. It raises your level. It raises yeah. your level. That was without a doubt. That, that was a master class in comedy every night watching the best work and, and work out new stuff and, and whatever. Yeah. And I'm sure that you learn about different audiences and the different kinds of material. I've read where you say when you do one of the jazz cruises or something like that, you have an audience that's captive. They're on the they're on the ship. They're not going anywhere. They're there on vacation. They paid a lot of money to be there. And so you go a little easier on some of maybe the more controversial or political humor that you might weave into your act, typically if you were at a club. So what I wonder you perform so extensively, both in the United States and in Canada, and you've played here in Canada a lot of times. Do you recalibrate your set for a Canadian audience? Is it different? No. The, 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 you know, one of the fantastic things about Canadians, there's uh, many things, but they can laugh at themselves, which is great. And they know everything about the United States. So I don't have to explain that. I always say Canadians know more about the United States than Americans do. Yeah. So, so like when I go to, to Canada and I make fun of Ben Carson, they Canadians know who that is. Yeah. Now, Americans don't know the prime minister of Canada, let alone who is in charge of housing and development, you know? Yeah. So in that sense, it, it is great to go to Canada. But it's also the sense of humor that Canadians have about the fact Americans know nothing about Canada, right? So, so those jokes work, and yeah, it's just you, you're you're a people with a great sense of humor, and that 
that really makes it fun to do comedy in Canada. You're listening to my interview with comedian Alonzo Bowden. Find out about his Just for Laughs performances at hahaha.com. It's funny, we often joke, if you say to an American, uh, well, when you think of Canada, and the American will interrupt and say, actually, here's the thing, we don't think about Canada. <laughs> we just don't. <laughs> I get it. There's a lot of you. There's fewer of us. Ten times more uh, Americans than there are Canadians. Um, tell me a little bit about what the last 15 or 16 months have been like for you. Uh, you were doing some Zoom shows. They have to be weird. I watched a, a number of them, uh, comedians that I know and were trying to support. But it's a different vibe. How did you adapt to that? Well, you know, the, the pandemic lockdown, the biggest change was it was quiet. It was quiet. And I have to be honest. I, I enjoyed that more than I thought I would because I'm normally so busy with travel yeah. and this like I my neighbors were like, oh, that's who lives there. <laughs> like I had never been home that much, you know, right. so so in that respect, it was really it was really kind of nice. It was really kind of nice. And, and when it came to the Zoom shows and the type of shows, the creativity during the pandemic was figuring out how to do comedy. Mm -hmm. So we started out doing streaming and Zoom shows and it was like you're performing into the ether. It's silent and you, you're you doing a monologue and, and the hardest thing was don't talk too fast. You know, I just did 20 minutes of material in five minutes because no one's <laughs> laughing and I'm talking like, then we, we figured it out with the technology. People figured out how to unmute the audience so you could hear them laughing and it helped with the timing. But I but I, I tell people that the difference between live and Zoom is the difference between playing Grand Theft Auto and actually stealing a car and running from the police, which which has a little more energy. But there were also we did shows on rooftops. I, I did shows rooftops, parking lots, on the beach out by the pool there were places where you did it the pool was the moat between me and the right. audience right? right so so you know if covid travels over water i don't have a chance <laughs> um the creativity was figuring out how to do it and the, the nearest i could could compare it to and this is kind of ironic because i've started a radio gig but when you're on the radio and you tell a joke you say something funny you don't know if they're laughing in their car listening but you're kind of like well it was it was funny when I said it yesterday. <laughs> now, what will happen at JFL? Uh, will you be here at the festival or is it virtual? No, what they're doing. So the hybrid festival, we're going to be in different cities. Mm. So I'm going to be doing my shows and we LA comics will be doing our shows here. New York comics will be doing the shows there. And I think Canadian comics are coming to Montreal and they're going to use the, the technology, whether it be Zoom or some yep. similar technology to stream it all so you can see all of it from where it is. I mean, we're, we're looking forward to getting back. We were hoping to get back this summer. Mm -hmm. As you know, Just for Laughs, that's summer camp for us. That's oh. where we all get to see each other. We get to go to each other's shows. And instead of you being a thousand miles away, you're two blocks up the hill, you know. Yep. So obviously we're going to miss that. And just being in Montreal, one of the most beautiful, fun cities, just it, as again, you know how fantastic it is. Yeah, so yeah. I'll miss that part. But it will be fun to perform together and just kind of say, hey, we're still here. We're still funny. We're still putting this together. 
Um, we're keeping the brand alive. As the kids say, you got to work on your branding. Right? Right. So we're keeping the brand going and just looking forward to actually being welcome in Canada again. Most of us, some of us uh, developed criminal records over the pandemic and won't be back again. But let's not let's not talk about that. We won't dwell on the negative. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. That was the great Alonzo Bowden. Now, you can see his Just for Laugh show on July 29th. If you need details, go to hahaha.com. It's kind of fun to say, hahaha.com. That is the Just for Laughs website, and all the details will be there. All the ticketing information, everything you need to know. A big thanks for Alonzo for appearing on the show. Also, a big shout out to Tracy Deer. Check out her wonderful movie, Beans, in theaters on July 23rd. Of course, my biggest thanks always goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy. We'll talk again soon.